1: Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Anthropology. I'm your host, Dana Dennis. I'm very excited today to bring you my interview with Dr. Crystal Abedin about her new book, Internet Celebrity, Understanding Fame Online, published by Emerald Publishing in 2018. Dr. Crystal Abedin is currently a senior research fellow in internet studies at Curtin University in Perth, Australia, and she is a world-renowned expert on what it means to be famous on the internet. So thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Anthropology. Today, I'm very happy to be talking with Dr. Crystal Abidin about her new book, Internet Celebrity, Understanding Fame Online. Welcome to the show, Crystal, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Dana. I'm really excited to chat. Oh, so am I. Our first question on the New Books Network is typically a sort of biographical one. So, wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to do this fascinating research on internet culture.
0: Sure. So, my interdisciplinary background and my training was originally in anthropology, sociology, media, and communications. Since then, I've worked in a variety of departments, including sociology, Asian studies, even business studies, and I'm right now in the School of Internet Studies, or rather, a department that works on Internet studies. However, I still consider myself first and foremost an anthropologist, whether in terms of my epistemology, my methods, or the types of questions that I ask in my research.
1: Great. And I'm looking forward to talking with you more about some of those methods and epistemologies as we get into the interview. Um, But first, um, a sort of ground-clearing question. Um, What is internet celebrity? And how would you say that it's different from what we might call traditional celebrity?
0: Right. So most of the time, people tend to ask me this question from the other angle. They would give me examples of, say, social media influences, and then ask me how internet celebrities are different. So I'm very pleased that we're now focused on the internet-y aspect of the internet celebrity. So traditionally, when we think of celebrity in the mainstream traditional entertainment industries, we are picturing people like actors, singers, uh, people in theatre, or musicians. If you think more largely about society and celebrity, We'll be thinking about public figures like politicians, so to speak. What I focus on, though, is a very specific category of celebrity that usually originates and evolves online. Internet celebrities are usually everyday, ordinary people um, of vernacular users on the internet who generate or intentionally cultivate celebrity online or, in other instances, come into celebrity by accident or by happenstance. I use the broad phrase internet celebrity to refer to these categories of people, but also these categories of content, because these days, anything and anyone from your pets in your home, to internet characters, to virtual reality, um, 3D modeled stars on virtual worlds can also be forms of internet celebrity. The main thing to remember, though, is that they have very high visibility. They are highly seen and registered, not just by the machine eye of algorithms on social media who recognize them as being prolific or viral, but also by the human eye, the viewers on social media who voluntarily or sometimes involuntarily give them attention. And the qualities of their visibility can be something that we'll chat about later on.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, So you identify four qualities of internet celebrity in your book. um, Exclusivity, exoticism, exceptionalism, and everydayness. Now, of course, not every... Internet celebrity sort of exemplifies all four of these qualities. But could you explain for our listeners what these qualities mean and give some examples of internet celebrities who kind of do embody those qualities? For sure.
0: So early on, I mentioned that when people usually ask me what internet celebrities are, their frame of mind is already focused on a particular type of internet celebrity that is an influencer. And these are people who generate persona on the internet and then generate an income based on displaying such persona and embedding sponsored messages in them. So based off this general assumption that the most elite or successful internet celebrities are influencers, my first definition or the first quality that I picked out was exclusivity. This refers to groups of internet celebrities who are usually celebrated for glamour, or they are given attention because people enjoy watching how they celebrate practices or possessions that are quote-unquote elite or rare. It would usually be highly unusual for ordinary people to experience these practices or to have these possessions without really high economic capital. And the stereotype of these would be the rich kids of Instagram. This has become a bona fide genre on the internet, not just confined to Instagram anymore, that refers to groups of young people who are showcasing, sometimes crassly, their glamorous lifestyles and their wealth through visual images online. And if you're interested, just going onto an Instagram site, and keying in the hashtag RKOI, which stands for Rich Kids of Instagram, would pull out a series of these images of such young people. So, focusing or rather moving from these elite economic peoples, um, the second category looks at everydayness. This is obviously a lot more accessible, it's a lot easier to practice or to mimic. It refers to a set of practices by internet celebrities who perform very mundane and ordinary aspects of daily life. It can be someone uploading, say, a selfie a day, someone who's recording themselves eating meals on a, a temporal basis three times a day. But the main key criteria here is that such cataloging of everydayness is given with candor, with insight, and with regularity and consistency, such that over time, viewers and social media users start to feel a sort of sustained social relationship or a sense of community among other viewers who are also watching this character, or maybe in fact towards this character themselves. So it's now based on the Meduan um, idea of social capital. My favourite examples are usually babies. Now, if you really, really think about it, babies are perhaps the most maleable of all um, humans. They've got set and regular meal times, nap times. They're also sort of portable into different settings across different rooms in the house, which is why you see a proliferation of parents maybe dressing up their children, such as the case of nap time with Joey. She's a baby who cosplays once a day during nap time in different costumes, or um, a Chinese internet famous baby known as Xiaoman, who is very well known for having videos of her daily meals at lunchtime being uploaded online. So the first two have dealt with exclusivity and then with everydayness. We now move on to the third category, which is that of exceptionalism. This refers to groups of internet celebrities who demonstrate unusual abilities, astounding qualities, or maybe expert skills of a certain nature. They can be traditionally elite skills, such as really great musicians showing off their wares, or they can be really mundane, such as people tossing a bottle overhead with their eyes blindfolded and managing to land the perfect shot 10 out of 10 times. So it can be a skill that is admired for its spectacularity or it can just be admired for the consistency or the novelty of a skill. My favorite examples of this are a South Korean guitar prodigy named Sunga Young who is now a full-grown adult touring full-time as a musician and on the other end of the spectrum with the novel and mundane skills We have Miss Ye, who runs a YouTube channel out of Sichuan, China, whose expertise is using everyday office appliances and equipment to make fully edible meals at her desk. The fourth one is exoticism. This refers to groups of internet celebrities who are aware that they may not fall within the norms of a particular platform or a particular practice. Say, for instance, if they find themselves in a platform like YouTube that's predominantly English-speaking, or in a place like Instagram, where most of the women who are able to garner celebrity on the platform tend to look hegemonically beautiful or slim. These would be your internet celebrities who can identify themselves as outliers or intentionally groom themselves into, be, into becoming outliers, so that they can promote this sense of distancing, this sense of novelty, this sense of foreignness that then piques the interest of audiences who may hold contrasting or different forms of values or cultural capital to them. We also want to remember that this predominantly is exercised by non-white audiences and non-white internet celebrities who play with ideas of orientalism and intersectionality So my favorite examples when I teach this to grad students or undergrads is Kinoshita Yuka, who is a binge eater from Japan. She performs a type of practice known as mukbang eating that originated from South Korea. In short, she sits in front of a webcam and binge eats a crazy amount of food in a very short span of time. And people are attracted to her content in part out of curiosity and part out of the grotesque wanting to understand how she's attempting this feat. Across these four qualities that I've mentioned, some of them tend to showcase more on some social media platforms than others. So exclusivity, where people show off their wealth and eliteness, tends to showcase a lot on Instagram. Everydayness tends to showcase a lot on apps that allow you to regulate content on a daily basis visually. So we're now looking at Instagram, in the past, Vine, or even YouTube. Exceptionalism requires a longer padding time for people to showcase their skills. And YouTube is one of the last bastions of the internet where we voluntarily de- give up a longer, pro- uh, a longer attention span, say to sit through a video that's more than 10 seconds long, more than two minutes long. And finally, exoticism. Depending on where you're positioned in the world, you can find it on almost every other platform existing as a subculture. So those are the four main qualities, their impacts, and also where
1: you can spot them on the internet. Thanks so much for that really comprehensive overview. Um, let's talk a little bit more about money and internet celebrity. Um, you mentioned before that um, for most people, when they're talking about internet celebrity, they tend to think of influencers Um, first folks who may be able to generate significant financial profit through branding and marketing. Um, but that's of course not the only form of internet celebrity, as you mentioned, but for those people who are, um, that is their goal to make money by becoming sort of famous on the internet. Are there observable patterns in terms of who succeeds in making a living as an internet, uh, celebrity or an influencer and who doesn't, um, succeed in that goal.
0: Right. So let's talk about the influences first before getting to the other internet celebrities who are also commercial. Early on, I gave the definition that internet celebrities are mostly known for having high visibility, a combination of machine eye and the human eye. Now there are different factors contributing to this high visibility. Internet celebrities can be famous online for fame or infamy. So it could be positive or negative. It could be celebratory or out of shame. They may be well known because they have a talent, a skill or otherwise. It can be sustained or it can be transient just overnight and that's it. It could be um, intentional or by happenstance. It can also be monetized or not. Not all of these tend to exist in um, moral categories of dichotomies of either ors Influencers tend to system- systematically adopt one of these two dichotomies. So you would generally see them pursuing fame rather than infamy, positive attention rather than negative or shame, talent and skill rather than some other haphazard demonstration, They would usually aim to have a sustained fame, not transient. They would intentionally pursue fame and not have it by happenstance. And ultimately, they would aim to have this whole performance monetized. Now, this is describing what influencers are. But operationally, what influencers do is to write about their lifestyles in a very accessible language online, on a very regular basis as well in order to cultivate feelings of relatability, intimacy, accessibility with their followers. Once they've reached a critical mass of followers, they're then able to partner with many different types of sponsors and embed sponsored messages into their content in a variety of being an ambassador or practicing really great astroturfing skills. These days, these influencers are working not just with products or services, they're also working to now work um, embed ideologies, political messages, to see types of sentiment in different spots of the internet that may not cleanly correlate to a product or a service that you can buy. So this is the realm of influencers who are pursuing internet celebrity full-time as a career. So that has been sort of a quick summary to how the very specific form of internet celebrity known as influencers monetize their fame. But there are also many other varieties of internet celebrities outside of influencers who deal with commerce and money. And one example that might be interesting would be that of memes. Memes. Now, there are generally about three different stages to becoming a meme celebrity or a meme personality, and they interact with money and commerce quite differently. In stage one, someone may exist just as the face of a meme. They may be recognized in that the picture has gone viral. Users may recognize the format of the meme and how to use it in humor. But beyond that, not much is known about this person behind the face. We may not know about their names. We may not know much about their lives. And that may be the first and last we ever hear of them. And that's it. So you can imagine that at this stage, it's not very easy yet to monetize this meme if you haven't come forward to take ownership over your image. But there is a second stage where some people who have become the face of memes go on to become meme persona. These are people who are well aware that they have now some sort of public um, awareness or public celebrity around their image, around how they're stereotyped as a meme, and they try to re this repeatedly, systematically, to building a persona online, maybe even re-performing or re this meme in physical spaces like VidCon, Con, different conventions, They cultivate an online persona entirely based on this stereotype and try to use this as a persona or a parody to push forth sponsored messages. At this stage, the variety of sponsored messages that meme persona can work with is still quite limited to the nature of their meme, the origin story, or the stereotypes that were first attached to the humor around the picture that went viral. But there is hope in stage three because some meme personalities from meme persona graduate into becoming full-blown meme celebrities or meme influencers these are people who are able to very early on spot the potential for commercializing their internet fame so they may re their meme celebrity in stage two But they generally have a longer plan in stage three to use this initial virality merely as a springboard into other more sustainable things. We have, for instance, seen um, many people who have gone viral based on a picture or by appearing on a reality TV show who then take to immediately congruently starting accounts across various social media using the same handle maybe the stereotypical phrase that people know them for, registering these handles on various accounts so that they are the verified user, and then working to grow their followers on each of these platforms. Eventually, they then use these spaces as a bona fide influencer would, parlaying all sorts of sponsored messages, separate to the original origin story of their meme, so depending on where you are in this stage of main personalities, there are various ways that these actors work with money, whether
1: intentionally or not. I'm curious about um, methods of how and Where um, do you spend your time when you're doing fieldwork? Because, of course, like the internet itself, your work is very expansive in terms of its geographic scope. You're looking at media cultures and trends um, in East and Southeast Asia, but also in Scandinavia, the US, Australia, the wider English-speaking world. Um, So can you tell us a little bit more about um, the ethnographic process of doing the research for this book and for other projects that you're working on? Sure.
0: So at heart, I am still sort of a very true-blue anthropologist and that my passion and my interest lies in conducting traditional field work. What this means is that for the bulk of my cornerstone research, I still do traditional participant observation, spending time with these various actors in the flesh, whether it's in organized settings, such as in influencer agencies, in media companies, in PR firms, or in less formal settings such as volunteering or working systematically on schedule in a variety of positions with influences as a secretary for a period of months, as a personal assistant, as someone who maybe um, visits them very periodically drops into a conversation. So it's still very much in the realm of traditional field work in for the most part. But taking a springboard from this, though, there are many other aspects of internet cultures that are more observable, more accessible, and sometimes only proliferate online. So while I have had, um, while I have had the great privilege of working with influencers and watching how they craft their posts, write their texts, uh, maybe even dress themselves, these days, a lot of these phenomena are almost entirely online. Take for instance, virtual influencers. To study the virtual influencer per se, the only way to access them is online because they are virtual. If I were to take my field work offline and do traditional participant observation, that may entail then looking at the developers, um, visiting their offices, trying to work out what they're like. This is not to say impossible. Sometimes it just does not fit with my research agenda which means that I'm confined to an online space. Some of the methods of inquiry are also specific to the types of um, communities I'm looking at. Some other parts of my research focus on specific types of demographics and peoples that have to be accessible online. Say, for instance, fans and communities of pages um, and anti-fans who congregate only online as opposed to meeting offline. In these moments, I have to be extremely online to conduct digital ethnography, to inhabit the spaces they inhabit, to learn not only how to navigate spaces like virtual worlds, maybe sometimes forums, maybe sometimes networks of social media, but also to learn how to communicate in their vernacular, a combination of internet slang, lead speak, sometimes the local language, but sometimes also really highly specific fandom um, vocabulary. In these moments, the participant observation is also quite similar to traditional PO. It sometimes involves um, acknowledging who I am, introducing myself to groups of people and asking if they're willing for me to learn what they do, do what they do, observe what they do. In other instances, if I'm, say, trying to map out a very large scope of what a scene or a subculture looks like, this may involve more of the observation aspect, say, for a very long period of time, systematically tracking a hashtag to see what sentiments come forth, or maybe even surveying what sorts of content particular search terms on social media may bring up for me if I'm trying to understand the nature of a platform. Um, For the most part, though, in the future projects that are upcoming, in the projects that I've recently concluded, i have been very, very, very fortunate to have had the ability to physically spend a number of months over several years in the Nordic parts of the world, um, across Sweden, Denmark, Finland, and Norway, to work with agencies and to work with influencer networks on the ground level to understand their systems. And in my forthcoming works in East Asia, I'm also going to be returning to my original method of physical field work in these various sites to understand the behind the scenes processes and the projection and of influences and internet celebrities online
1: That's great um One of the things that I thought was really interesting as a reader of this book, and I do hope that our listeners will get a chance to um, pick it up and read it um, and take a look at the physical copy of the book, because there are these great illustrations um, of line drawings that were done by Liba Studios Um, that represent the internet celebrities or the famous memes that you're writing about. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about why you decided to do that? Why choose to have a line drawing, for instance, of a typical rich kids of Instagram image rather than just using the image itself? Sure.
0: So uh, I think my reasons are threefold. I'm going to start with the most straightforward one, not in any order of hierarchy. The logistical aspect would be, of course, copyright. Now, although many of these figures belong to internet celebrities, and although many of these figures are memes, I generally do not believe that public information is public data. Or rather, let me clarify this, that publicly circulating images do not necessarily constitute public data for researchers. If I'm compiling a blog post that's also on the internet or screen grabbing tweets and then tweeting about them, these images stay in this milieu. It means that people who access my summaries have the social context, the cultural context, are able to trace you back to the original figures via links. But if I'm publishing and now representing these originally digital images in print, then I'm introducing permanence. I'm also introducing a distance in the original context. And I may not now accurately be able to persuade or convince audiences of how best to read these images in their original context. So the first was uh, my, my routine or rather my practice of not wanting to circulate images outside of their social context if I'm unable to be really, really confident in replicating all the information for a brand new audience. The intellectual aspect of this challenge is of course the templatability. I'm talking about internet celebrities and memes who either by design of their visual image or by the routine of me narrating the account are very familiar to several people across, um, or rather several demographics across internet users. So by now introducing one layer of unfamiliarity, by introducing an outline sketch as opposed to the original image, it was a fun exercise to see still how many readers would be able to recall in their minds the original meme um, and to identify how closely they remember these stories or the context behind the images. Because, of course, on the internet, we are now encountering celebrities and memes at a really, really high pace, high turnover, um, and high volumes of content. So I took it as a mini test of our social memories of the internet. The third was um, coming from an ethical concern. In this book, I also speak of people who have unwillingly become internet celebrities or Who have become internet celebrities, accepted it, but then have been exploited along the way by other people who have tapped into their images um, and do not assign posts back to them or assign any of the benefits back to them. If you are reading a copy of this book, specifically I talk about this in the case of people who have unwillingly become memes, or in the case of people who start off as eyewitness viral stars interviewed by TV networks, and then suddenly find themselves exploding into virality on the internet when people repost about them on social media. In both of these instances, it's really difficult to verify whether or not these characters would like their celebrity or their virality to be extended or continued. As opposed to influencers who are generally aiming for more amplification of their persona, or the meme celebrities who are laboring to build up a database. So for the first group of them, it just did not feel right if I were to perpetuate the replication of their images if they did not want to be associated with them. So in those line sketches, apart from an outline of their body, I try as best as I can to work with an artist and remove identifying features like their facial features. But at the same time, because I want students and interested readers to be able to read up about them, I name them as they were named in the popular press articles so that they're searchable, but I do not divulge any other additional information, say their legal names, that is unnecessary and does not contribute to the further exploitation of their privacy or their
1: image rights. Thanks for sharing these ethical reflections. Um, that was actually something else that I was um, sort of thinking about as I was reading your work um, about how your work um, expands and builds on our sort of traditional anthropological norms about the ethics of privacy. Um, for many of us, we, um, we agree to protect anonymity and confidentiality for the people that we're working with. But of course, as you say, for um, your work with influencers, They are actually building their careers on this performance of openness and transparency, and what they want is actually the opposite of anonymity. So um, I was just wondering how you think through these things as you're writing about these people, Um, and you've given us one really good example here in terms of how you think about the reproduction of images, but can you give us um, a little bit more reflection on how that shapes your work?
0: For sure. So I might make a quick comment that institutionally, we as anthropologists or rather as academics as a whole, we still abide by anonymity and confidentiality as the baseline. And I still start with that, of course, as a baseline offer whenever I negotiate with my informants. However, having had a number of years of experience now working with influencers and internet celebrities, um, I want to pay attention to the networks of power Um, and the power relations and exchange that are exchanged between myself as a researcher and my informants who are co-producing this content. Um, On the one hand, while I want to offer them anonymity and confidentiality, and of course, educate them on perhaps the long-term harms that they may not foresee, I also have to recognize that these are experts of visibility and of their online portfolios. They are doing this for an income, They're doing this as a livelihood. And in some aspects, they may be more informed than me even about confidentiality with regards to what they put online. So for instance, in my other works, I've written part of these methods up, talking about, say, the commodification of privacy. What I as a researcher originally thought was private in terms of vulnerable issues that I should have concealed from my informants were grey areas that they were. They have already decided and reconciled to make public in order to further their narratives or to be a bit more genuine about who they are online. So while I may think that this vulnerable blog post about a difficult time in their life should be private, for them, they have already decided and segmented this specific topic or this specific story as public information. And everything else they are unwilling to share, they keep and assign as private. So I was not going to instill my own ethic notions of the private and the public, the anonymous and the not on them, but rather it was a co-construction process. In this process, reflecting on the power relations, I also learned from my informants that it would greatly contribute to their welfare, their status, sometimes even their standing and their income to be named in in an academic piece of research, because it gave them more veracity, it also meant that for the industry as a whole, more attention was being paid to their practices, their logistics, as opposed to having these influences being talked about passively in the press. Now, if this is especially linked to the level of exposure they get, which translates to their traffic, which translates to their monetary earnings, then it was ethical for me to abide by their requests, to name them as much as they like, um, or to name them in a convention that they prefer, say by their social media handle that is searchable, as opposed to their birth name, so that they're also able to benefit or rather have some sort of a claim in this process. It just would not feel right if I was growing my career or writing publications with these mostly young women um, and withholding these equal benefits or a sense of reciprocity that they could also have gotten out of these research processes. Um, On the whole, having named them does not influence the type of research that I do. There were some instances where it was a long negotiation process thinking about how to break up the stories of various influencers so that they can be named for some vignettes and not named for others. Also thinking through some of the ethical implications of permanence, say if an influencer is now starting out young and wanting longevity, reflecting on whether or not an adult version of them would want to have their teenage images still available in print when you can't redact this, maybe in the same way as you can online. So I'm not completely imposing my view, neither am I completely swaying according to their opinion. Um, Although research ethics is important, I found that a co-construction process on the whole was more useful for me. And on the long run, it also ensured that my informants were happy to continue in my longitudinal research. And at the end of the day, as a human or as an anthropologist, I think that was more important to me. Than being able to publish a superstar piece of research um, without my informant's consent or publishing, placing them as anonymous or pseudonymous against their will. So, even now, for specific types of research, whenever I reflect back on a data set or, or an interview snippet, I still go back and forth with some informants with whom I have a long term relationship to reconfirm that they're happy to still be anonymous or that they're happy to still be named, so on and so forth.
1: So is there anything else that you want to highlight about the book that we haven't touched on yet? Well, fresh off the field book I've just completed
0: in the Nordic countries. Um, I've been working with several influencer agencies, but also with regulatory networks on what we are now calling the shadow economies of the influencer industry. These may broadly refer to a set of strategies or malpractices practices that have been proliferate in the industry. Um, some of the more popular examples would be some influencers resorting to buying fake followers, um, purchasing services from click farms who um, use machines to fake, uh, register fake likes on specific social media posts, um, people who engage with bots in order to give the guise of organic engagement from their followers. Also influencers who work with um, more gray areas. So not specifically working with illegal means, but with vernacular folklore on what gets their content amplified on a social media platform. So hashtag spam, for example, going on Instagram, having a short caption, and then putting a second comment with up to 30 hashtags. Um, just to get your content seeped into various networks or various channels of conversation. Or Instagram pots, Twitter Decks, where groups of influencers come together and manually engage with each other's content in the first few minutes after it's been posted. In order for the system to see this or record this as organic um, engagement, from users out of their own accord, and then signify a higher place in the algorithmic feed for these posts. Now, in the first group, we're going to be talking about buying fake followers, working with bots, purchasing the services of click farms. These are clearly now malpractices that have been outlawed. In several influencer industries, it is regulated that if you are found to be committing these faux pas, you will be penalized clients will drop you. In some instances, um, social media platforms may also exercise some sort of caution with your account, perhaps flagging it for review. But in the second category, when we're thinking about users who are now learning those savvy ways of the platform, realizing that hashtag spam works, um, it's quite a gray area. Sometimes the platforms respond such as in the case of Instagram, where there is folklore around this issue called a shadow ban. How it works is that apparently, supposedly, according to folklore, if you were to commit hashtag spam, Instagram may ban your account from posting updates or commenting for, for a period of time, known as a shadow ban. But the third group that I talked about with influencers rallying together to support each other's content organically, manually, yet simulating the practices of machines and devices. So for instance, the Instapods and Twitter decks. these are still very much up for debate. The agencies I've worked with haven't yet decided whether or not this is clever strategy or an unfair advantage. And many of the regulatory networks and consortiums that I've been working with are also working on working to decide whether or not this is a moral conundrum. Because on the one hand, we have to acknowledge that these are young people, mostly, who are working on their own as entrepreneurs on social media and coming up very cleverly with these strategies in order to improve their lot. But it's so easy for all their efforts to always just be diminished or wiped out with every small tweak or small change on the social media platform which also profits off their labor in terms of native advertising now so i guess for this reason a lot of the consortiums and regulatory networks that i've spoken to haven't yet decided if this is a decision that wants to privilege the rights and the intellectual practices of influencers, or whether they want to focus more on the followers and the users whom they feel are equally educated or whether or not they want to work with social media platforms to decide on something more equitable for everyone. So this would be the next stage of research that myself and I hope other researchers would also start to look at.
1: Yeah, it's a whole new world of sort of ethics and practice and thinking about what's a legitimate way to exercise influence on the Internet um, that I um, agree sounds fascinating, and I look forward to seeing Um, work that emerges in the future on that topic. Um, One of the things that I wanted to highlight for our listeners um, is that this current book project that we're discussing is actually a book that you wrote for popular audiences, um, and it's really accessible. Um, It's a delight to read. I would very much be interested in using it as a a textbook for a course if I were teaching a course on anthropology of the internet, for instance. Um, And I can see it also being used in like media and communications classes as well. Um, I do think though that it has a lot to offer to anthropologists who are um, maybe just starting to think about what is online culture and how is it um, sort of interpenetrating the world that we are all living in together these days. So would you like to tell us a little bit more about um, forthcoming projects that you have like academic um, projects that are aimed or projects that are aimed at a more academic audience, I guess I should say?
0: Sure. And thanks for the opportunity to share about this. So I had um, in mind started this as my first book um, for a popular audience. I sometimes joke with my colleagues that I took this book as if it were an extended blog post in print form because that was the way I was writing the book in my mind. I wanted it to speak to not just academics, but in general for anyone who wants to know what internet celebrities are. Now, this um, impetus was twofold. The first was that often if I were relying on popular media resources or just Googling what an internet celebrity is, Much of the works that I would get were either journalistic reports or PR firms sometimes coming up with their own sponsored reports covering the state of the industry. And I thought it was important to have an academic version of a popular document that could describe this in a different way, not so much focus only on the money and the commerce, but also recognising the social cultural conditions and implications of internet celebrity. And also, earlier, as I've said, because a lot of our stereotypes about internet celebrities belong to the realm of influencers, I wanted to give a very wide span of what an internet celebrity can look like. So I started this as the baby book or the introductory book for a general audience, so to speak. And following this, I published a co-edited collection with my colleague Megan Lindsay Brown in November last year called Micro Celebrity Around the Globe. It is a series of chapters primarily authored by early career researchers based in the Global South or with expertise on the Global South. At this stage, we are now looking at forms of internet celebrity, micro celebrity, and influencers in different parts of the world who may look quite different to our stereotypical images had we relied on what is now predominantly Anglo centric literature on this phenomenon. So we had various authors focusing on, say, the state of censorship in a country, the state of platform politics in a country, and more anthropologically, maybe the state of different cultural norms in specific spaces in the world. And how these three things combine are going to paint a very, very different phenomenon and practice of Internet celebrity. For instance, take the idea of shame. Something that's considered shameful and may parlay an internet celebrity into um, stardom or high visibility um, because they are being um, recognized but also being called out online may work in one cultural context. But if you were to transport this exact same phenomenon into a different cultural context where the shame markers or the barriers of entry into shamedom are a lot lower or a lot higher, you're going to register a completely different response. So back to Anthropology 101, what attracts us to these influences? When I say things like exclusivity, everydayness, exceptionalism, exoticism, these are all cultural beliefs attached to the human as much as they're attached to the social media platforms. So that second book was really reminding us that the cultural, social, and institutional contexts were very important. Following this, I have several other books um, coming out, but one in particular is an extension of this train of thought. It would be an academic book focused specifically on the influencer industry. It's covering the macro aspects of the industry, for instance, how they are organized um, across various stock exchange markets um, and on a micro level across several different agencies in a specific city in a place. But for the most part, I'm going back to my first love on looking at cultures and practices of people. So literally, how do influencers take selfies? How do they deal with hate comments? What is it like when they try to manage a diary for dressing up in order to take a picture? What is it like in their households when we joke about having Instagram husbands or Instagram parents who take pictures for them on a daily basis? I'm really focused on the really small micropolitics of everyday life as a result of some rather long-term research of influences based in Singapore, but also elsewhere in Southeast
1: Asia, such as in Malaysia and in Thailand. Thanks so much. I am looking forward to reading all those wonderful new book projects that you have on the go, and hopefully we'll be able to get you back here on the channel to um, do more interviews with us in the future.
0: That would be so lovely. Thank you so much for your interest in this book. I've greatly enjoyed this chat and I feel really privileged to be considered for this network. So thank you again for this chance.
1: Of course. Thanks so much for talking with us. That was Dr. Crystal Abedin sharing with us about her new book, Internet Celebrity, Understanding Fame Online. I hope you now feel like you have a better understanding of the brave new world of Internet fame and celebrity and influence in which we are all living. I know I certainly do. I'm your host, Dana Dennis, and thanks for listening to New Books in Anthropology.